The Irish Passport Podcast wishes to thank our wonderful sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com. Biddy Murphy is an online shop for genuine Irish goods made on the island of Ireland. Founded to bring the best of Ireland to the world by Tipperary man Ward Gahan. You can find jewellery in traditional Irish designs, fantastic woven products and those iconic Irish flat caps and all manner of Irish artwork and gifts over at BiddyMurphy.com. Do check it out. Before we get into the episode, let's hear a quick teaser for 180 Degrees, a great podcast by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland that has also sponsored this episode. Check it out. In terms of transport, I think it's change is going to happen. It's going to happen very rapidly. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. I think around 2024, 2025 is going to be absolutely crucial. When price parity comes in, it won't make sense to buy a petrol or diesel car. I think supply is finally going to kick off by then in terms of choices. We're going to have loads of choices of family cars, small cars, whatever. Um, I think we're going to see autonomous cars by 2028 start to really make a difference. And I think the landscape, the motoring landscape is going to be unrecognisable. Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. This is a listener questions episode. We are responding to some queries we got from listeners. Yes, exactly. And we have hunted down the best answers we could find for you. First of all, we'll be answering some questions about a united Ireland and the practicalities it would entail. For instance, would people in the North retain their options of having both British and Irish citizenship in a united Ireland? Or what would be the reaction of the loyalist community in that kind of scenario? After Irish reunification, would people born in Northern Ireland still have the right to dual citizenship? Next, we'll be answering a really great question, which is about the referendums on the Nice and Lisbon treaties in Ireland. These were a series of referendums on EU integration in Ireland in the 2000s. And this piece of Irish history is sometimes used in arguments by people who support Brexit. I went to Professor John O'Brennan, who's the Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University, to ask him about the real history of those campaigns. Brexiters are using this as a kind of trope that the Irish were forced to vote again. Now, I don't think that's true. We'll also hear from a listener who got in touch to say that he is thinking about moving to Ireland and he wanted some advice. So we put the question out to people who have made the move and they got back to us in their droves to tell us their experiences about moving to Ireland that were funny, they were surprising, and in lots of cases, they were pretty moving. The more open that you are to experiencing things in a different way and going with the flow, the easier your path will be. Can't wait to play those. And it's so interesting to see the country from the perspective of fresh eyes. But Tim, first of all, we need to have a quick word about a bit of sinister weirdness, actually, that's been going on with our podcast ratings. <laughs> sinister weirdness, indeed. Yes. Um, this is actually quite an intrigue. And it's been, it's, listeners, it's been befuddling us for ages now. So the thing is, a while ago, we noticed that something strange was up with our ratings in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. The issue is really specific to listeners in the Republic of Ireland, um, but it's really important because iTunes or Apple Podcasts is the single most popular way to listen to our podcasts. It's actually three times bigger than all the other apps combined. And the ratings people leave there really affect how many new listeners give our podcast a try. So here's what's so odd. Since the very, very 
very early days of the podcast, you know, we've always been pretty blown away by how positive our ratings have been, really across the board. You know, basically, listeners, you guys are really, really cool. Um, and I'd say that really, I mean, truthfully, only about 1%, if even, of the feedback that we've ever received has been negative, right? Yeah, we've got like really very positive feedback, which has been a lovely surprise because we were kind of braced for criticism, really. And the support that we've got is really reflected in all of our international iTunes podcast ratings. So iTunes or Apple Podcasts has different uh, versions of itself for each country. So there's a French one, there's a German one, there's a US one, Australian, etc. And it collates a rating based on reviews within those particular countries um, into an overall ratings. And those ratings, which are out of five, can really make or break a podcast because if you have a bad rating, then people will pretty much pass you over. Uh, rather than give you a listen. For sure, yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, on each and every one of those international rating charts, we, luckily enough, have received five stars out of five stars uh, on average, almost all of them. All of them, that is, except one. That one, strangely enough, is Ireland. Uh, a while back on the Irish version of Apple Podcasts, we started getting this sudden deluge of one-star ratings, uh, to the point that, at the moment, we almost have as many one-star reviews as we have five-star reviews. And then almost as quickly as that deluge came, it slowed down. And then now it seems to have stopped, but it's left us with a pretty paltry 3.1 stars on average in Ireland. Yeah. So first of all, we just assumed that people in Ireland weren't that into the podcast, which is obviously fine. But it was odd when our ratings were so different in every other country. Um, so we started to look into it a bit. Yeah, it was weird. You know, there was a few reasons. Firstly, it's that sheer scale of one star reviews, because there's almost no two star reviews or three star reviews or four star reviews, just all of these one stars. Uh, and secondly, hardly any of those one star reviews ever left a comment. And then thirdly, why did those one star reviews dry up all of a sudden? You know, like, did people suddenly stop hating the podcast? So it only occurred to us later on to look at when those reviews started coming in and relating to them to what podcasts were out at that time. And when we did that, we figured out that this sudden rush of one-star reviews pretty much all showed up in the period between our episodes on abortion law and the repeal campaign in Ireland. And particularly after the episode that we did, which was about attempts to manipulate the result of the abortion referendum through social media. Right. So you're probably thinking what we're thinking at the moment. Uh, but obviously, we can't draw any definitive conclusions. But considering these episodes were about far right and anti-abortion groups coordinating online efforts, and considering that we were pretty much exposing them for doing just that... We do now have a strong suspicion that this had something to do with it. To get into our mind frame, here's a clip from one of those episodes. A few days ago, advertisements began appearing in front of Facebook users in Ireland. These were ads by a page called Undecided on the 8th. Users who clicked were brought through to a website, undecided8.org. This website was running scripts, identifying visitors by their Facebook and Google accounts. What that means is that Anyone who visited could later be targeted with ads on Facebook and on Google. This is a signature tactic that was used in the Trump and Brexit campaigns. But there is, Naomi, there is light at the end of the tunnel because our listeners 
can help and it will cost you exactly nothing for totally for free. Um, if you are an Apple user in Ireland and you like the podcast, you can help to launch a counterattack against these uh, this one star brigade. To change our rating, it will take dozens and dozens of people to leave five star reviews because the number of one star reviews uh, that we got was so huge. Um, but even if half our Irish listeners did that, it could fix this problem today. So if you like the podcast and you'd like to help us, please do leave us a nice review. Um, it really does make a difference. And otherwise, sharing the podcast with your friends or on social media also makes a massive difference as well. Okay, it's time for our first question. And this one comes in from Andy in England. Let's hear from him now. Hi, my name is Andy. I'm from Leicester, England, and my father is from Derry in Northern Ireland. I recently got my first Irish passport after the Brexit, and that's the inspiration for my question. Right now, people born in Northern Ireland can hold both UK and Irish passports. In future, there's a realistic chance that Northern Ireland could leave the UK and rejoin the Republic of Ireland. After Irish reunification, would people born in Northern Ireland still have the right to dual citizenship? Would the UK government still have to grant Northern Irish-born people UK citizenship? Or is there a possibility they could refuse? Considering that, in this hypothetical scenario, Northern Ireland would no longer be UK territory. Thank you. Love the podcast. Thanks, Andy. That's a really good question. Uh, So, of course, this supposes a unification scenario sometime in the future. And just to recap how that might happen, the Good Friday Agreement sets out that unification could happen if a majority votes in favour of it in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. Now, this once seemed a fairly distant possibility because there wasn't really any sign that a majority would support it in the North. But that all changed uh, with Brexit. Since the referendum, polls have indicated that middle ground voters have become quite alienated from the UK. And for the first time, a majority voting in favour of unification is conceivable. Right. So because this was never viewed as a pressing possibility before, and because of the political sensitivities, pretty much all of the detail around any potential unification has still to be worked out. So questions like where the capital would be, how the nations would divide up the financial responsibilities, and how would everything be transitioned over, the flag, the official languages, all of that still has to be debated. And the nationality question is a really, really good part of that. Right, sure. Uh, the short answer, as usual, is it's complicated. And since a border poll wasn't really considered likely until very recently, a lot of this stuff has yet to be discussed in earnest. Citizenship laws have changed a lot over time and according to place. But essentially, it would be within the power of the British Parliament to decide this. Um, to get a rough idea, though, let's look at some precedents from when other nations stopped being part of the UK. Yeah, good idea. So when the Republic broke off from the UK uh, back in the 1920s, it was actually the case that while the Irish government wanted its citizens to be Irish, the British government continued to consider them British for a while, right, Tim? Yeah, exactly. And it was actually quite contentious for a while. Uh, The British government didn't really recognise Irish nationality as such, and was very keen that people from Ireland should continue to be legally considered British subjects, which was how all people living in parts of the British Empire uh, were classified. But this changed as bigger parts of what had formerly been in the empire began to break away. 
Uh, once national governments like Canada, for example, in 1946, uh, began legislating for Canadian citizenship that was separate from British nationality, or Australia and New Zealand, um, they followed suit, uh, Westminster had to pass a law that defined British nationality as referring to the people just within the United Kingdom and its remaining colonies. Uh, it followed that Irish people had an opportunity to apply for that citizenship if they wanted it, but going forward, it didn't apply to people born in the Republic. Uh, this set a precedent for countries that were breaking away, basically stating that independence and getting the nationality of a new state came at a price. Uh, so you could, for example, be either Ugandan or British, but you couldn't be both. It is messy, though. There were more updates to the law over time, and there were also complications because race and immigration concerns in Britain began coming into it. Uh, from some quarters, there was reluctance to grant a right to reside in Britain to people in former colonies. And the end result was that not everybody got the same rights. There were additional burdens of proof placed on Commonwealth citizens who wanted to move. And it's really a, a pretty messy story. Uh, so, uh, how relevant is this to what could potentially happen in Northern Ireland? Uh, well, the situation there is rather different. Uh, it's considered a home nation of the UK, and there is already a precedent that people there can claim a different citizenship to the actual jurisdiction they are residing in. Of course, anyone born in Northern Ireland can claim citizenship of the Republic on the same basis as people in the Republic, even though they are not technically born or living in that state. I can imagine that British identifying people in Northern Ireland would also uh, enjoy quite a lot of goodwill from Britain and Westminster in any possible unification scenario. And going from precedent, it might also help that they don't seem too far away and foreign and that they're mostly white. And again, going from precedent, anyone who is British now and has a British passport will certainly retain that. But the big question would really be about their children. So would they be able to pass their citizenship on? And could it be passed down indefinitely through the generations? Or would it be defined based on birthplace? So would future generations gain some right to be British if they were born within the boundaries of what was once Northern Ireland? So ultimately, like we said, all that would be in the hands of the British government to decide. And it really depends on their goodwill. Uh, a threat to remove nationality rights could, of course, be used as a kind of poison pill uh, to discourage people from voting for unification if Westminster opted to get its hands really dirty in a campaign like that. It all depends how consensual the whole process is. We also got a related question uh, from Isabel over on Patreon. So she wrote, I'm interested to know how others feel about the potential for violence sweeping southwards in the event of a union of Northern Ireland and the Republic. Much as I would love to see a united Ireland in principle, and I've been happy to hear the positive comments from some of your interviewees in the podcast, this is something that really concerns me about the prospect of union, particularly after hearing your podcast on the Glorious Twelfth. This chimes in with another question that we got from an Irish listener in England. Uh, she said, Is there a will for, or even the awareness in, the Republic that we may have no choice after unity but to pay for and fight a counterinsurgency campaign led by the Gardaí and Defence Forces? Bombings in our cities and attacks on our physical infrastructure could wreck the economy with multinational businesses fleeing the country. This listener also asked what could be next for the loyalist population in the north and would any loyalists choose to move to Britain if they decided they couldn't uh, put up with the United Ireland? So I've come across some of these questions in my reporting. And again, this is another area where there's been little no to no preparation so far because the prospect of unification just seemed pretty distant. 
and also because the Irish government didn't want to be seen to preparing for it as in itself that might be read as a provocative political act. From what we know from surveys, the majority of unionists say they would accept a united Ireland if one was chosen legally by democratic consent, because after all, that was the premise of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the fact that none of the paramilitaries on either side um, have the same military power as they used to during the Troubles. They were massively disarmed after the peace deal. Uh, but again, this does not mean that they can't do serious damage with what they have now, uh, nor does it mean that they can't get more arms again. So what do you think, uh, Naomi? You say a majority would support a peaceful unification, but that, of course, um, necessarily means that there will be a minority who won't. Well, we guess that there would be a minority who wouldn't, just based on the polling. And the they are understood to fall into two categories, um, basically fight or flight. So the flight, meaning some would choose to leave Northern Ireland in that scenario. And among them is the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, Arlene Foster, who has said that she would leave Northern Ireland for Britain in that scenario. And then there are the others um, who might fight it. Sure. And uh, what, like, when we say fight, what kind of level of violent resistance would we be looking at in today's terms? It's quite hard to know. Um, As it is now, the old loyalist paramilitary organisations are very fractured. They don't really pose a serious threat. Um, They've almost entirely given up their weapons. They're also ageing organisations. They only have a handful of the manpower that they once did. Um, Many of the people still connected with them are kind of involved in general criminality and gangsterism rather than political violence. So as they currently stand, as I say, they don't pose a great threat. But of course, you know, before the Troubles, there weren't paramilitary organisations that posed a great threat either. Um, But they managed to arm themselves and become a threat in order to wage conflict. So uh, a lot depends on how Ireland and Britain react and manage that possibility. If the paramilitaries did somehow manage to obtain and import arms, that would be a game changer. And also extremely important to consider are the conditions that favour recruitment to these organisations. So evidence suggests that the most important thing in order to avoid future violence is to give young people now more opportunities. Mm, right. That that um, reminds me of something that I think it was Senator Mark Daly who said in a previous episode. He wanted to pump funding into deprived areas in Northern Ireland, uh, especially to give young people other options uh, rather than letting them fall into paramilitary activity or um, similar related crime You know, by default. Yeah, so on both sides, um, essentially what we need to do is tackle poverty and to increase education and opportunity for people so that we're not bringing up young people who have nothing to lose. Our next question is about a kind of myth that people who support Brexit love to bring up in support of their arguments, uh, the Nice and Lisbon Treaty referendums in Ireland. We got a message from Paula on Patreon and she said, I would love your thoughts on the Nice and Lisbon treaties, or even on Irish referendums in general. I have a Brexit friend who says that Ireland are, quote, weak because the people change their minds in these referenda, and at least the UK are sticking to their guns on Brexit. So this is about a series of referendums that were held in Ireland. First on the Treaty of Nice back in 2001 and then again in 2002. And then on the Treaty of Lisbon, first in 2008 and then again in 2009. Both of these treaties were to do with building the European Union in its current form. 
and they are very long and complicated documents, they were ultimately agreed by the member states of the European Union. Most countries uh, did not need to run a public referendum to give the government permission to approve them. But Ireland did. We have to have referendums to amend our constitution. And there was a Supreme Court judgment in 1987 that found that this applies to European Union treaties as well. So we have referendums on them all the time. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, aside from our high profile referendums that have to do with, you know, quite culturally hot topics, um, there are these really boring referendums happening in Ireland (laughs) all the time too. And uh, very often when you vote in one, you'll actually vote in another at the same time. Um, Yeah, multiple ones at once. Indeed, and ones that you you may not even have heard of, even if you're quite engaged. (laughs) But, uh, you know, a very long, very complicated treaty, it's not an ideal subject for a referendum, as proved by what I just said, because it's really hard to inform people about what it's about, and it's quite easy for misinformation then to reign in those kind of circumstances. So to sum up a lot, the first referendum on the Treaty of Nice was to allow the expansion of the EU to include 10 new states. Poland, Hungary, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Slovenia, Slovakia, Czech Republic, now Czechia, Malta and Cyprus, and reform the structure of the EU to accommodate them. Initially, the EU, of course, had started out as just six states. So this treaty updated the internal structures of the EU and changed how decisions could be reached among its member states. The Treaty of Lisbon was another update um, that made even more changes. It increased the power of the European Parliament. It separated the European Council from the Council of Ministers and created a European Council President. It gave national parliaments greater ability to scrutinise legislation. And it also introduced the process by which a country could decide to leave the EU, that infamous Article 50 process that the UK is going through right now. Both the Nice and Lisbon treaties were attacked at the time by Eurosceptics as power grabs by the European Union. And in Ireland, there was a particular worry in national politics, which was whether the treaties could affect Ireland's position of military neutrality. Neutrality in Ireland is a hugely important national issue. And the idea that Ireland might end up being forced to participate in wars and take part in a European army was used as one major objection to the treaties. And is still one of the big arguments that are brought up by political factions that are critical of the EU. Uh, If you ask me, uh, these kind of fears at the time were handled pretty badly by both the Irish government and by the EU. The Irish government didn't um, give out enough information to voters on what was a hugely complicated subject, and lots of EU commentators took a bit of a balchy attitude to Ireland, like it was holding everyone up and this referendum was just a bit of an annoyance. So it got a lot of blowback from Irish people, um, you know, who who felt very protective of neutrality. And it also got a lot of attention from anti-EU factions in the UK who wanted to use the Irish referendum to weaken EU institutions. So the rhetoric at the time was really high, uh, to say the least. Yeah, and it's worth saying as well that it was a lot easier to attack these long... um technical and boring treaties than to make like a feel-good campaign in favour of them. Also, there was a certain assumption among politicians in Ireland that the referendums were a bit of a formality and that the public would vote in favour without much need for them to do any campaigning to make the argument about why these treaties should be passed. Right, yeah, sounds familiar, Naomi. Yeah, so long story short, the this assumption was wrong. Both times the referendums were rejected um, in a shock result the first time round. Then the treaties were renegotiated, 
brought back to the public and the second time round, the answer was a yes. Your sceptics still off-cast these as cases of the EU bullying the public opinion of the Irish into submission, aided by craven elites. Um, but others see a range of complicated factors, including low turnout the first time round and political complacency and low understanding of the treaties as being behind the initial re- rejections. And they point out that Ireland was not actually asked to vote on the same thing twice in either case. Rather, the Irish government secured changes in Brussels to address the public concerns. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really important point. Uh, There's a funny parallel here with the discussion around a potential second Brexit vote. Um, The second Lisbon vote, like a potential second Brexit vote, was on different terms to the first one. Like you said, Naomi, the treaty had been renegotiated. And by the way, this happens with Irish referendums all the time. It happened in the divorce referendum, for example. A motion is rejected, it's modified, and then it's put back to the people in a new form to see if they like it better this time. So this simplistic idea that the Irish were forced to vote twice, you know, it's it's still been hard to shake off ever since, even though it's not true, uh, especially among Eurosceptics in the UK. This being a complex topic, I wanted to get an expert view on it. So I went to uh, Professor John O'Brennan, who's the John Money Professor of European Integration and an expert in Irish EU affairs and EU enlargement to answer Paula's question and explain what really went down in those referendums and why it keeps coming up now 10 years later. Brexiters are using this as a kind of trope that the Irish were forced to vote again. That, in other words, it's impossible for any member state to vote against an EU treaty change via referendum because the elites in Brussels will force them to do this about turn and um, ratify second time round. Now, I don't think that's true. I think in both cases that we're talking about, Nice and Lisbon, there were very substantial changes sought and secured by the Irish government before they put the proposition back to the people in 2002 and again in 2009. When people say, well, they were forced to vote again, firstly, it was a sovereign choice of the Irish government. They could have chosen not to ratify, but instead they went about securing material changes. And so the proposition that came back to the people was materially different. I think that's the important point to be made. So what were the changes that the Irish government secured to that treaty? Um, In the first referendum, the Nice Treaty, it was all about that question of neutrality. In response to the Irish no vote, the change secured was that all EU member states voted in favour of a declaration by Ireland that, I quote, The European Union's common foreign and security policy does not prejudice its traditional policy of military neutrality. And therefore, I quote, Ireland is not bound by any mutual defence commitment. So it stated that all deployments of the Irish Defence Forces have to be sanctioned by the Irish Parliament, Dáil Éireann. They went back and talked to other member states about this and came away then with this guarantee that nothing in the treaty would override or supersede the Irish commitment to military neutrality. So that was important. It was an important, substantial change. When it came to the Lisbon Treaty then, some years later, after it was rejected, Ireland went to Brussels and secured an exclusion for Ireland for being included in any common defence policy once again. 
In addition, as John O'Brennan explains here, Ireland persuaded the other member states not to reduce the number of EU commissioners to be fewer than the number of member states, to ensure that all members had representation on the commission at all times. John points out that this has taken on a special significance right now in the new commission, in which Ireland has been given one of the most powerful portfolios, particularly when it comes to negotiating the EU's future relationship with Britain. It was precisely because of the Irish intervention that the European Union agreed to maintain a one commissioner for each member state position. And I was thinking about this actually over the last few days because after the hearings in the European Parliament, Phil Hogan emerges as one of the most powerful people in the new European Commission as the Trade Commissioner. It is entirely possible that we'd have ended up in a situation where we would have had no representation on the Commission at all uh, if the government hadn't gone to the EU after 2008 and said, look, this is one of the Irish people's chief concerns that we would not have a commissioner, you know, five years out of 15. So I think people should think about that carefully when they say, well, they were just forced to vote again. They didn't secure anything that was materially different. This is really untrue. And it's worth pointing out, I think, that in both of those referendums, the turnout was very low. Uh, as low as, I think, 35% in 2001. And that reflected real complacency on the part of political actors, in my view. Uh, In both cases, I think it was almost taken for granted that a yes vote would be secured. And I know of a really large number of TDs and senators, I can remember very clearly from both of those times, they simply didn't campaign for a yes vote. Their complacency, in other words, was a big factor in the low turnout, number one. And number two, the fact that people actually didn't understand what they were voting for. We'll be posting a full interview with Professor Brennan as a half pint over on Patreon. He went into much more detail on the treaties and the referendum campaigns that we have time for here, and also talked about the nature of Irish Euroscepticism and how it has been affected by Brexit and his reflections on the course of the negotiations so far. Sometimes I I feel history kind of speeds up at particular moments and we're all struggling to understand what's going on. Do you feel like we're in one of those moments? Oh, yeah. Naomi, I get the feeling that in a way we are all John O'Brennan right now. Well, (laughs) I hope hope that answers your question a bit, Paula. This question comes in from one of our Patreon supporters, Kelly Monaghan. Kelly writes... I'm an American who holds Irish citizenship by descent from my maternal grandmother, who was born in the 19th century. Needless to say, my connection with Ireland is somewhat distant, and I have no family connections that I know of in Ireland. Given the political situation in the United States, I sometimes mull the possibility of moving to Ireland. There's plenty of information online for Irish emigres who are returning, but I found nothing for people in my category. Would it be possible to find and interview Irish citizens like me, American or otherwise, who have made that move? How did they adjust? What challenges did they face? What about their non-Irish spouses? What sort of reception do they get? My understanding is that few in Ireland would consider me particularly Irish. And so on and so forth. So, what can we tell Kelly, Naomi? Well, it's your lucky day. We put out a call to our listeners and followers on social media and ask people who have done this very move to answer the question from their own experience. Yes, indeed. And they really delivered. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone who got back to us. There were far too many responses to include everyone, but we tried to fit in as many as we could. 
So, my name is Tyg, um, I am 20 years old, uh, and I moved to Ireland uh, nearly two years ago now. Um, my maternal family is Irish, my dad's side is English, um, and I had quite an internal conflict moving over to Ireland because I wasn't seen as Irish, um, even though I very strongly connect to my Irishness, um, because of my accent, I, I was seen as a Brit, and that for me was was quite difficult to to deal with. Um, you know, there's already an identity split when half of your uh, nationality has committed atrocities against the other. Um, there's already a kind of disconnect there. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, moving to Ireland was the best thing I have ever done. Um, I made. A lot of friends with a lot of common interests. Um, I go to college in Ireland. Um, I did have the benefit of moving over to be with my long-term partner. We'd been long distance for a year prior, um, so I knew that I had a place to sort of set up shop. Um, for anyone considering moving to Ireland, I would say definitely consider the West Country. It is an incredible place. Um, it's gorgeous and there's not quite as much of a housing crisis um as there is in kind of dublin and the surrounding areas um and also be prepared that if you do like ready salted crisps they are basically impossible to get hold of uh, unless you are buying pringles aside from that um my only other advice would be to watch out for the cost of living um which can be quite high depending on on where you go um and be mindful that Ireland is a very strong country with a very strong identity and, and strong culture. Um, make sure that you enjoy that. Make sure that you are getting involved in things in your area and you're paying attention to how Irish history has manifested into Ireland today um, because it's all important. You won't struggle to make friends, though. Everyone is, is up for a good laugh, and it's, it's easy to find your niche. Hi, my name is Shannon Slope. Personally, I found it harder moving from Belfast to a smaller village than it was moving from New York to Belfast in the first place. A bit of background. My father's family left Mayo after the famine, so I grew up hearing stories about it, but that was as much of a connection to my heritage as I had. I was really interested in history, and I started reading about Ireland and the Irish language fairly early on. When I finished high school, I booked flights. I landed in Dublin. I stayed there, and I also went to Dingle for a while. Um, I stayed with kind of family friends. Um, none of them are still here. They all left after the, the crash. Uh, they actually think it's funny that I have stayed on. 2007, I came to Belfast to start my master's in Irish studies there, and I, I've been here ever since. As a side note, I cannot say enough good things about Ulster University. I do not think anyone gives it nearly as much credit as it deserves for the quality of the work they do and the genuine care they show their students. I have worked in everything from bars to museums. I married a woman who's originally from Kilkeel of a unionist background. Um, we have two children. I now work for Women's Aid in Northern Ireland in the same building as two other American women. And this is the most I have been around other Americans in about a decade. Here are some things that I can share that I've taken away from my experience first. You will think that you are speaking the same language. You are not. People will often be too polite to tell you that they have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, probably in about six months down the line after some pints. Uh, but 
the good idea is to be quite attentive to people's responses to what you say, just in case. The biggest thing I would recommend is that you get yourself a hobby. Maybe you're already into something and that's great. And if you can continue doing it when you're here, just dive in. But most of the people I know that are here from the States came for uni. And in that case, it's a lot easier to make friends and kind of find a place for yourself. I mean, as an adult, it's not easy in general, especially if you've got children, but it's very, very easy to end up isolated and alone in a new place. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. Even with a family, I have found that there have been times when I felt very alone. Leaving your home requires a certain level of acceptance that you're not likely to feel completely at ease again because you're not going to be surrounded by people who have shared that lived experience with you. So you're going to need to go out and find people that you can build those experiences with. For me, this has been through the Irish language. What started as an academic interest and to some degree a reclamation of what I felt was lost heritages has turned into a passion. I feel very strongly about Irish and its place in society, and I can share that with people here. And the more I learn, the stronger I can build uh, bonds with people, and I can also share those experiences, and it gives me a place here. You know, I have my ups and downs. It is, it is not easy. Um, people here have, you know, background in it from a younger age. But look, if you're coming, I, it's one thing I would highly recommend is doing that. There are things in particular that you will need to think about if what you're considering is coming up my way in the North. There's a whole new set of factors that you might be aware of, you might not be aware of, but Essentially, there is nothing here that is not political, especially right now. There's no neutral stance on anything. You'll learn to be aware of yourself in ways that you did not anticipate. You will start to be aware of your surroundings all of the time. And you will probably not share your opinions as quickly with strangers as you may have done at home. Uh, For example, I speak Irish with my children, but certainly not everywhere. Uh, this has been had been changing up until this whole Brexit fiasco, and I have seen a lot of aggression in the last few years, and it's really sad. But the North is full of young people who give a lot, who give me a lot of hope about the future. I mean, this mess has brought groups together to fight for each other's rights uh, in ways that I haven't seen before, and I hope will continue. If you have political opinions about the North, as many Americans do, leave that at the airport. As someone raised in a fairly Republican place who has studied Irish history and conflict, but who has married into a family with a unionist tradition, anything you think you know, you probably don't. Everything involves layers and layers of history, multiple identities, and an ever-present fear. I, I think a lot of people here have been holding their breath for the last 20 years. Don't get me wrong. If you live in a place, you have every right to engage and participate in how it's governed and, and where it's going, but... Make up your mind once you've been here and not before. It's really not as simple as people portray it. As for how I see my own identity, I, in fairness, I thought I was Irish before I came. And I would defend the rights of those in the diaspora to engage with that identity. But it's only in recent years, traveling home, that I realize I've become Irish without trying. 
For me, it was difficult to adjust in terms of work and housing. I'm an Irish citizen and passport holder, but it was tricky getting a PPS number, took more than a few months to hear back from job applications, and it is impossible to find a long-term housing situation, at least in Dublin, without physically being in the country with a lot of time on your hands to view apartments. And everybody knows the rent in Dublin is ridiculous. Now, my wife is not Irish, but since she married an Irish citizen, me, she was able to quickly get approved as a permanent resident with the right to work in Ireland, which she did for her American-based company. Now, nobody is blown away or impressed by an American moving over to Ireland. Really, the first time any Irish person meets you over there, they'll assume you're a a tourist until you say otherwise. Some people you meet will want to ask you 21 questions about why you moved over, and you will feel like you're being judged. Um, But the people I met at my work at our local pub and in my local GAA club were all very nice and friendly. But you would have to work at those relationships to get a true sense of friendship and community. Now, I do consider myself Irish, but I didn't go around telling everybody that unsolicited. While I was living there, there were a few people that said to me, you're Irish like me. And I heard from another person, you're not Irish until your family has been living here for 500 years or something like that. And I did get the impression from some clearly racist people that they were just happy somebody white had emigrated to Ireland. Hardly anybody questioned my Irishness to my face, but if you go on Irish Twitter for any length of time, you will see criticism of Irish Americans and a rejection of our Irishness. And I get it. American tourists in Ireland are terribly annoying. I even did my best to avoid them. And Irish Americans do have bad politics, for the most part. But so does Fine Gael, in my opinion. And you know, too bad for me, they're still Irish. Uh, But anyway, it was a great experience living there. I miss it very much. And my advice would be to travel within the country as much as possible because there's so much to see. And here's the last tip about getting the PPS number. They say you don't need a PPS number to get a job, but every employer will ask for one up front and they will throw out your application if you don't have one. If you go to the public services office and say you need one for a job application, they won't give it to you. So you need another reason. What I did was I said I needed it for a driver's license application which everyone does when you're applying for a new license. So they gave me a PPS number right away for the driver's license application, and then I never even took the exam in the end. So it worked out that way. My name's Stevie Nolan, born in London to Irish parents, moved back home about 30 years ago to Belfast initially, right in the middle of the Troubles. Uh, When I left there, I ended up working for the Irish Labour Movement in its anti-sectarian unit, working with prisoners and ex-paramilitaries and Worked for the last 10 years across Ireland, everywhere, Galway, Cork, Letter, Kenny, you name it, I've been there. And in all of that time, I've never had any negative reactions to my accent, to my perceived identity, to who I was. People were only ever interested in what I had to say. Having said all that, I'm white. Hi, I'm Catherine, and I'm an American who lives in Dublin. If you haven't already, you definitely want to make sure that you go about getting all your papers in order through the Department of Foreign Affairs website, which is dfa.ie. The fact that your spouse will be married to an Irish citizen is going to make his or her path a lot more smooth. I moved here in 1995. I would never return to the US. I absolutely love living in Ireland. I am a naturalized citizen, I am a parent here, I am an active volunteer, and I am truly grateful for the opportunity I've had and continue to have to live here. 
uh, on, on a daily basis even. I absolutely love it. It is, you know, Ireland is not perfect. It is not going to be perfect all the time. You will find challenges. And if you want it bad enough, you'll do it. I think it's important to be patient. Sometimes the wheels of bureaucracy can grind very slowly. It's also to be be patient with yourself. The way things are done in countries outside of America are different to the way that America does things, and that's okay. And, you know, be the more open that you are to experiencing things in a different way and going with the flow, the easier your path will be. Irish people are wonderful. Um, I absolutely consider this my home. My accent um, outs me all the time, which is annoying, but uh, I, I love living here and I love being Irish. So welcome. Bye. Hello and welcome to Ireland. Know that your heart will miss a beat when you see the Achlia sign as the plane taxis to the gate. Know that the passport queue will be long, but you'll get a smile from the border guard. Know that you'll be too familiar with bus errand numbers and where they all leave from. Know that somebody will chat to you while you're waiting. Know that the driver prefers country music. Know that wherever you're going, it'll be a journey you won't forget. Know that when you get there, you'll be a blow-in. Know that someone somewhere will question your Irishness. Know that most won't and won't care where you're born as long as you've answered 30 questions about your family first. Know that the pubs is where we meet. Know that finding a place to live is hard and the cost of living is mad. Know that the public transport is chaotic. Know that you'll never understand the politics. Know that you're best not talking about the North. Know that if you're not a member of the local GAA club, you'll never be fully integrated. Know that the Irish language has too many letters and learning it is the best crack you'll ever have. Know that the meaning of the word crack, even if you can't put it into words. Know that this land is a diverse, inclusive and extraordinary place. Know that the sunrises and sunsets will be richer and brighter. Know that your life will be changed. Know that despite all its problems and its history, Ireland is the place you'll find yourself. Know that this island is your home. Welcome home. I was so impressed by those responses. It really shows the diversity of people who make up Ireland. And I found it really interesting to note as well, how many of the people who got back to us are people who learned Irish, you know, went uh, on their own initiative, you know, as people living in other countries started learning Irish or or once they'd arrived in Ireland. There was actually loads of them among the people who responded, which was so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I was was struck by that as well. And actually, I have to say that um, that's the advice I give to, uh, I send students off on foreign exchanges all the time in the university. And that's one of the pieces of advice I always give to them. Um, Go and take a language class because it's, you know, language classes involve you having to have conversations with other people and you make friends, you know, quite quickly. And certainly, like, uh, I found it worked for myself. But I can imagine if you, um, I mean, if you show up in Ireland speaking Irish, people would be so impressed and charmed by that, I'd say. Yeah. And just just to add as well to that, um, as far as the government is concerned, like they really want you to make that move. They really want you to come back. There's all kinds of government campaigns to entice people to make the move to Ireland. So yeah, if you look online, there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah, sure. My, my social media targeted advertising has been full of it recently, Naomi. <laughs> anyway, as well as those audio responses, we also received some great written responses to Kelly's question, and we'll be posting all of those over on Patreon. I've had so much fun going through all these questions and we'll definitely be doing another uh, mailbag episode like this in the future. 
By the way, if you're interested in hearing more of what the Irish Passport listenership has to say for itself, or if you want to ask a question yourself, you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport to become a supporter of the podcast right now. We also answer listener questions over there. Uh, we even make little mailbag videos every now and again. So if you've enjoyed this episode, you'll probably like those. Thanks as always to our sponsor, biddymurphy.com, where you can find authentic gifts and products made on the island of Ireland. Sloan for now. Sloan, everyone.